0: What? Hey, Sophia. What? Guess what? What?
1: People are giving us money.
0: No way. They're
1: literally giving us money.
0: They're giving us money right now?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I can hear it. Can I-, <laughs> I can
0: smell it. Can other people give us money too? I hope so. How do people give us money? Go on to artgrindpodcast.com and click the button Donate with PayPal and follow the... The prompts? The prompts.
1: Thanks again, guys. Stay safe out there, and don't get murdered.
2: That's
0: a, that's a, that's a, a different podcast.
1: That's a much that's a much better podcast than ours. <laughs> Welcome to the Art Grand Podcast. Tonight we're recording in the historic West Room of Marshall the Art Students
0: Marshall the weird. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the West Room Podcast. It's Art Grant. I'm here with Thea Brodsky, Tan Miang, My- and our extra special guest, Wade Schumann. So thanks for coming, Wade.
2: Thanks for having me, Wade. We, we should, love we you.
1: What is the meaning of life, Wade? <laughs> Let's circle back.
0: (laughs) Um, I mean, I I can talk about how I've been like projectile vomited on all day. I mean, that's That's the circle. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs)
2: Yeah, we'll we'll circle back to. There's meaning in
1: there. So wait, but start us off. What what drew you to a life in the arts? Was this a lifelong pursuit? Was this something you knew as a kid?
2: So. I'm from a family of artists. I have, okay. My great-grandfather was a guy called Henry Turner Bailey, who was a kind of larger-than-life character okay. on my mother's side. Um, my So my father's side, they're all Jewish. Nobody knows where they came from. My father doesn't even remember his grandparents' name. Wow. He doesn't Whoa. know where they're from. They just were old people who spoke Yiddish. That's <laughs> all I can get from him. Really? So it's like a real immigrant story. My mother's side came over on the Mayflower. They're wasps going back to like, you know, Elizabethan times. Wow. So, so uh, it's a totally different, different, you know, totally different background. And my, so my mother's grandfather was a kind of larger than life character. And he was the artist. He was, uh, he was a real 19th century guy. Incredibly confident, uh, he um, he built this incredible house in the New England shingle style, like the early Frank Lloyd Wrights, and it had a tower, and it had like a, a like a, this uh, incredible studio. And he started something called School Arts Magazine, which is still going in publication, like over a hundred years later. Oh wow! Uh, he was in charge of. He was like the drawing czar for all of Massachusetts. Wow. He became the dean of the Cleveland Institute of the Arts. He took people all around the world, like, giving art lectures. He wrote, like, I don't know, many, many books. So he was this kind of presence in my childhood. I would go to see my family, and we would go up to this house, which was called Trustworth. Um, and yeah, so my my great uncle, who, who was... Uh, Uh, mentally handicapped, lived in the house... With a housekeeper, and the house was preserved in amber from the 19th century. Wow. So I could just walk through this giant house with a curving staircase and a turret, and go into the the, the the studio, and it was full of casts and drawings. And then you'd go down the stairs into the office, which was where he had the magazine, and it had a dark room from the 19th century with glass plates. Everything Whoa, was still there, and it so had great. walls yeah. like. 15-foot walls, which were all little boxes with things on it. And that was his morgue. Like, the morgue was the equivalent of the Internet. So it would say, like, little boys with dogs. And you'd pull the, the, the little drawer, and there'd be clippings and drawings and photographs of little boys with dogs. Wow. So that's how they ran. Like, in fact, there's, you know, that the, the, the public library has a morgue. When my wife moved to town in... Um, what was it, 2009, before really Google, she, she would go to, you could go to the public library here and you'd say, I want images of, of cocker spaniels and horses. And they would just pull out these big piles and you'd go through and then you could take out clippings.
3: Wow. Like books. So cool. So
2: I don't know if they still have a morgue there or not. So this, uh, this building had a morgue. And so as a child... You know, I just wander in this magic place and had this amazing smell. And there were all sorts of, uh, you know, paintings from my great grandfather. And then there was this mysterious great uncle who, you know, he, his way of communicating would ask you to do things for him. So you would, he would ask you to do something and he would sit in a room and just rip newspapers. Like that's what he did. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. So there'd be like shreds of newspapers. Wow. Um, uh, Gilbert. I loved Gilbert. Gilbert was a very, Gentle, warm guy. And as a kid, I just, I didn't, I always thought he was like faking it, that it was just like an adult pretending to not be an adult. Uh-huh. Um, so this was a big part of the kind of mythology of my childhood was this artist who had such an impact on, on the whole family.
1: Your great grandmother. My great grandfather. Was he like painting impressionistically or?
2: He was a, Somewhat mediocre painter, although okay. he did beautiful drawings of trees, oh. very similar to would Dina's. You, you,
0: but you promised to send me at some And date. he did a
2: book called Tree Folk, oh. which was That's a great title. Tree Folk, uh, uh, and the the binding of the book is literally made of a cross section of wood, oh, and no, the inside no. there are Whoa. all drawings of trees. And he named trees. So, in fact, my name. I was named after a tree that was in my uncle's front yard, which was a Jotham Wade tree. And the Wade...
1: Oh, my God. Jotham
2: Wade was a settler in Massachusetts in like, I don't know, the 16th century. Uh, and, and my great-grandfather named all the trees. Uh, the tree, as far as I know, is still there. It was pretty old. So it was like wow. 300 years old or something. Wow. So, um, So I grew up in Ann Arbor, which was a very liberal college town. In the Midwest. And I think it was like a perfect place to go up.
1: Oh, in Michigan.
2: Michigan. So when you describe that, you're growing up with the sort of
1: blue blood Protestant and the conscientious They were not. Liberal. No, that was
2: Massachusetts. It sounds, I, I was like, he grew up in New England. No, no. Because, well, it's complicated. So my mother's family is from Massachusetts. My father's family is from Cincinnati. I was born in Massachusetts Then when I was about six months old, my family moved to what was then East Pakistan, now Bangladesh. So we lived in Dhaka for two years, my first kind of very beginning childhood. And then we moved back uh, first to the East Coast and then settled in Ann Arbor Okay, and and moved to a blue-collar street kind of at the end of town which at that time was a dirt road little houses people mowing their lawns but it wasn't like the suburbs it's kind of like felt more like a small town at that time you know and then uh, I went to the local elementary school, which was like one of these Midwestern schools where it, it's like a, a, a slug. It just goes long. There's no one single story. <laughs> yeah, right. There's, and there, uh-huh. there's a hallway down the entire building. Each side is classrooms. And that was it. Wow. Uh, and, and, you know, we just had whatever classes. I never paid attention I was hyperactive. I was probably incredibly annoying to the teachers. <laughs> I got no education. I literally got no education. I couldn't sit still and I couldn't do math. Wait, and wait, wait, dyslexic. wait.
0: Wait, this is shocking. You could not sit. You're still, you see. still not sitting still. So,
2: I was like this weird kid and then I got I was drawing. So I had you know the passions of my we're talking about, you know, 10-year-old Wade. Um was drawing. I drew incessantly all the time and animals. I was obsessed with animals. I had a best friend at the time and we would go out and catch snakes. And I had, you know, I grew up with like snakes and lizards and salamanders and frogs and turtles and newts and fish uh, and so great. you know hamsters, guinea pigs, rats, mice, everything, <laughs> alligator, you know, different things would appear and disappear. Like we got some skunks, but then we couldn't keep them. So, you know, uh, so I was like obsessed with animals from a tiny, tiny kid. But curious. It sounds like you curious, were curious. Yeah, like my Curiously father is a curious. recording of me when I'm like, I mean, he, he wrote down when I was like two. I like this hundreds of animals that I knew. Oh, that's great. So so anyway, so I grew up, I mean, what books I read that. I I did, I think I read The Hobbit in junior high school. That's when mm-hmm. people read The Hobbit. Yep. Lord of the Rings. I had a brief sci-fi period uh, my brother was into science fiction so I, there was some spill off from you know Larry older or younger brother I had an older brother who was quite an influence on me because he he's a musician okay so he you know, he was seven years older so oh, okay when I was you know seven he was 14 and he was playing boogie woogie and stride and Bulgarian music and all this pre-war music. And so I kind of, uh, and we had, so when we moved to the house, it was, we grew up, it was a very small house. So originally we were in the same room, which is about this big, (laughs) which (laughs) meant that one of us was going to kill the other one. Uh (laughs) So my parents just put a wall and I had one room and he had the other, but the wall was very thin. So... Basically, I heard music all the time. And he
1: was seven years older. Than right, time, which right is, is fairly significant. Yeah, that but is also, significant.
2: At that period in time, I mean, I don't need to tell you, but uh, I was born in 62. Um, it's a whole topic of conversation, but I think in terms of music, the most two most creative periods in the history of this country, and in my opinion, one of the most creative things about America is the music. Uh, were the 20s and 30s and the 60s and 70s. Jazz and rock and roll. What? Jazz and rock and roll. Basically, yeah. <laughs> and the thing about it was they were periods of intense uh, synthesis between uh, different groups of people, a cultural uh-huh. shift, um, all sorts of things were happening at that time. And
1: both American, you know, F- they came. American, American phenomenon. Art but forms. D- d-
2: d- the 60s were more complex of course because of the British invasion which was basically a a return of the volley from American music that happened earlier uh, from the American American cult right skiffle (laughs) was directly influenced by pre-war African American music Uh but anyway so the 60s were this incredible time of musical change because my brother was older than me I heard a lot of that music very early so that was really became my musical DNA Mm -hmm. Um, So in the late 50s, but essentially early 60s, was this kind of blooming of interest of of all the blues musicians who recorded at that time. But not just blues music, you know, Cajun music, American folk music. And that, of Mm -hmm. course, is what Dylan came out of, was was the Harry Smith anthology. Uh, So um, I like the genuine New York sounds. (laughs) We're right uh, on 57th Street. (laughs) So anyway, getting back to what I was saying, so the... My brother was listening to music that at that time was popular among certain intelligentsia but not nationally popular, which was these early recordings Uh that had kind of come back uh, with the advent of the folk movement, which starts in the 50s but then becomes big in the early 60s.
1: Which even had, like, was for a certain intelligentsia when I was a kid. Like, Harry Smith was still a thing that was swapped around when you're 15 and pretty cool as a kid. Yeah,
2: and I think, uh, and then, you know, he also played, you know, The Beatles and Donovan and, you know, Uh, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. So I heard all of that. So that kind of became a big part of my childhood, Um, but I didn't become a musician until... Uh, basically I left the house because I had an older brother who was like this brilliant pianist, you know, and he could hear something and just play, you know, like, and I, of course, was seven years younger. So I'd go to the piano and my parents were like, Oh, that's terrible. You know, <laughs> Cause of course it was terrible. So, you know, I was just told I had no talent at all. Oh, no. So it wasn't really until later that, um, I got involved in music and that was very independent of my family.
1: But were you, at that point, as in terms of a fine artist, were you sort of looking at artists? Like, were you looking at a titian or a sergeant? Did you have a vocabulary for those, or you were just drawing?
2: I mean, you know, it's a question of who discovers what and when. I've talked about this with Kurt Cowper. You know, Mm -hmm. it's interesting when you listen to people and their experience of the first time of looking at, you know... European, Western art from, you know, the Renaissance or later. Um, I mean, to the extent that you're aware of that has all sorts of factors. I mean, my mother was... For instance, there was, a, there was my great-grandfather, of course, so mm-hmm. I saw all these reproductions and I had tons of art. Like, I could just go to my great-grandfather's house and take all these drawings. Like, my grandmother just give me I hundreds of drawings and he was also um, very close... Uh, to a Japanese artist in the 19th century. So he had all these Japanese prints. So I have all these amazing Japanese prints. Wow. Um, And then, of course, my mother was more influenced by more modernist art. So that was around as well. wasn't until later in high school I had some teachers who were actually interested in traditional painting, Uh which was also unusual for high school. Yeah. Uh, I had one teacher. He had been a uh part of a group of people and i can't remember i think it was this secaucus seven not sure can't remember the number really
0: seven <laughs> where where
2: they they came and destroyed all these draft uh, records burn them so they went to jail and he went to jail and he did drawings and coffee and stuff and he was into oh, okay. um and uh His name was Tom. I don't remember his last name. But anyway, so he taught traditional painting. So I had like Merigée in high school. Oh, wow. So I started painting, oil painting, basically around fifteen sixteen. Okay. And at that time, you know, I remember looking at Aang and just being astonished and, you know. Uh, And I had another teacher and she was very into Michelangelo. So... I was lucky to have people who were um, interested in that at a pretty young age. And so I was determined when I left high school to learn how to, like, draw mm-hmm. and learn how to paint.
0: And That's how great. did you go about doing that? Because, it, because I, I feel like, I mean, like, now we have all these, like, academies, ateliers, or whatever. Like, if you want to learn how to draw, there's a place you can go. But how about we Absolutely
2: you didn't exist. I mean, when I was in high school... Uh, I spent the last two years in boarding school, <coughs> Massachusetts, so near Massachusetts. So near where my grandmother was. Uh, and then I applied for RISD and Cooper Union. Okay. And at those times, you ha- they had these very rigorous applications that involved.
3: Serious- you have to have my like, straight A's. Did I? No, I'm saying I think. Well, when I try to apply, you had to have. Straight Well, Cooper Union was free at the Cooper time. Cooper Union was yeah. free. It was
2: very hard to get Prestigious. in. Prestigious. And all the schools, you had to do, like, really ambitious drawing and you know, very complicated and they wanted people with real skills and then you would get in and then they would dissuade you from skill. <laughs> so there was this irony that they based their application on skill, but then once you got in you were told that skill was somehow problematic or I mean, suspicious. I, I,
0: I did the Cooper Union application, it was so hard. Like, like Really? Like, it was yeah. rigorous? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like they made you solve a set of like visual problems. That I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Like, like, I don't know how to solve this. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, because it ha- you have to both be good at drawing and good at critical thinking. Right. So. It's like out of the
1: box thinking, right? Yeah, wasn't a yeah, lot but, of out of the box questions like paint like velocity
2: or whatever. Right. Like there that. were things like that. So, you know, I ended up going to RISD and they had a very good foundation program, but their painting department was de skilled.
1: When were you at RIS- I'm fascinated with a few periods at RISD. when were you
2: there I was there uh, after the David Byrne period so I was That's there That's what I st- <laughs> still cool to be in a band but he was he was at that, that I so I went there in 80 1980 Okay so uh, 80 yeah. 81 So um there were still rock bands I was in my One of my first rock bands uh, that I was in, it was actually a bluegrass band called Fried Fish. Uh, So I had a band in art school. But then um, I was totally disappointed in the school. And, uh, you know, and this is where I have a lot in common with Dina, I think, is that. um,
0: You have a problem with authority? (laughs) No, (laughs) I didn't have a problem with authority. (laughs) I,
2: I had a very, I had kind of. I have to say I had an amazing childhood because because there was nobody minding the ship you know in the 70s I always say like in the 60s all the rules were broken down you know Uh, There was civil rights, there was a sexual revolution, there were drugs, there was... And by the 70s, everybody was exhausted. It was like, okay, just do whatever you want. And By the 70s, it it turned into cults and serial killers. Well, no, because that was late 70s, but early 70s was really the end of the 60s. Like, Uh people didn't start really dying until the late 70s. Uh So... um, The hate turned dark. So, you know, when I was like 15, me and my best friend hitchhiked across the country... You know, his parent, his mother just took us in his his VW micro bus, dropped us on the side of the road. We hitchhiked across the country through to Montana, uh, walked all around Yellowstone, like t- totally on our own. You know, like I got up in the morning, went down, and there was a mother moose with a baby moose, like 12 uh-huh. feet away. I'd just been told that they were the most dangerous thing in the in the park. Much worse than the bears. <laughs> yeah, yeah, moose are And then we... Backpacked across the Beartooth Mountains and then met his dad that he hadn't seen since he was 10, who was a park ranger. Wow. Uh, and uh, and we had just become uh, vegetarians, which was, you know, that's when everybody's become vegetarian, which uh-huh. doesn't didn't last very long. And his dad's w- new wife had cooked us this big chicken lunch and and we said, you know, we don't eat meat. And his dad, who was like this macho guy, was like, "Park Ranger that person. makes you gay. You <laughs> don't eat meat, you know." And the, although he didn't use the word gay, <laughs> and, and, and you know, uh, you know, because we were like hippies, and then uh-huh. we rented canoes and went down through the Badlands, um, and then we hitched freight trains from Bozeman to Chicago. So this it's sort of the
1: zen and the art of motorcycle being yeah, its track.
2: <laughs> I mean, but that was my childhood. That was so when great. I was 15. So my whole view of the world was very self-initiated and very independent. You know. But I think it's interesting. Nobody want, would let their kid do that at 15. Now. But don't you
1: think, this is what I'm touching on, because I had a similar upbringing, but it was because it was really fringy and countercultural. But it does seem like, and someone who didn't live through it, Like the 60s to me from history books and documentaries seemed like this beautiful moment of civil rights and revolution. And then like you said, it got exhausted in the 70s and the back end of the 70s got dark. And then the 80s and 90s were just satanic panic and everybody freaking out over where's my kid? Someone's going to, where's Johnny type thing. So it's going to adopt him. And now it feels like. We're in a, a nanny state still, residual. But
2: you know what happened in the 70s? because So I was born in 62. So by 72, I was 10. Yeah, so you but didn't really live in the 60s. But I missed that period. But I also always had friends who were much older than me, uh-huh. uh, for whatever reason. So I was hanging around with people who were really from that period. Mm-hmm. And so I was like a hippie kid. I had long hair. I hung out, you know, I played Frisbee. Uh-huh. Uh, I did a lot of drugs from the age of 14 till 17. Did you? What kind of What kind of drug? Like LSD? I'm and... not a... a, 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 a uh, <laughs> no, but that's what you did. Yeah. I mean, but it was also, number one, it wasn't recreational. It was about consciousness. So Break not, on it, through. It really had a lot to do with... Uh, you know, Eastern religion and uh-huh. the notion of consciousness, which was pretty old-fashioned in the 70s. So by the time I came up, there was a whole reaction against the 60s with this kind of neo-50s mentality. And you would get totally picked on if you were a hippie kid because there was this kind of... But see, people forget because Reagan was the end result of something that started happening in the 70s, mm-hmm. which was a very... Um, uh reactionary right wing um, movement against the 60s um, right right. But
0: you know wait'm I'm, so I'm not a hippie. But like in the and like so my, not not really, but like my, my, like that age, it's 14 long. to 17, like it sounds like we had, yeah, like I did a lot of drugs from like that, like, like at that exact time, I, at by 17, I was out of the house. So I hitchhiked a lot and kind of was like entirely like, I feel like our parents might've been different, but do you think it might just be a specific kind of person that does all of this?
2: <laughs> I mean, I think if I can say it, you know, your parents are, are uh, Russian or Belarusian intellectuals, and there's a lot in common with that previous generation because there was a delayed uh, cultural phenomenon. I mean, I remember being in Czechoslovakia in 1986, and it felt like I was back in the 60s because intelligentsia were frozen in time when the, when the wall came up. And so for a lot of people, uh, especially uh, Eastern European intelligentsia, a lot of the values of the 60s, and there were a lot of positive values, you know, um, love was a value, Uh uh, intellectual exploration was a value. Uh, a notion that we can make the world a better place was a value. Mm-hmm. So those values are very strong in Eastern European. I
0: also wonder if we just ended up reading the same kinds of books. Because I feel like my parents definitely didn't want me doing all of these things. But I wonder if like growing up in a house full of books and you pick up one thing, you pick up another. And, it, you know, and like all of a sudden you think hitchhiking is cool or you think that, you know. The, um... Well, how much
2: did TV factor in your I mean, lives? TV was huge in my life as a kid. Because you know it Uh, it was just a phenomenon, and and now in retrospect, it's you know, at the time everybody was worried. I mean, that's the irony is when radio came in, in, it was very scary to people, and then uh TV came in, it was the end. Uh Of course, it's nothing compared to the the endless uh thing in our pocket. That's right, there's it's not even. You know, I mean, I would literally get up as a kid and you'd wait for the Sunday morning cartoons and it would be... There was nothing because the TV was turned off. There would be you know, what was referred to as snow, just this uh-huh. thing, you know? Yes. And then you'd wait, and the Until first, the show, the first <laughs> show came on. Was, we were near Canada, it was Michigan, it would be Canadian broadcasting. You'd see these colored lines, and then it was the Canadian national anthem. Yes. And then it was like incredibly boring religious programs. Uh. You know, and you would just a kid, you'd be just like
1: going nuts, waiting
2: for, so you know, like American...
1: Cartoon violence, I mean, I mean, but we, you, really you say forever. that like like radio. We thought it was bad or TV, but I do think we're seeing massive reproductions of TV right now. I don't think Trump is president without TV. I know? think Trump or Reagan. Be, your point, well,
2: I think that's a whole
1: other.
0: So um, we the last two years of our life in Belarus, we had a color TV, which very few people had, because my grandfather, who actually worked at the same. I know, it's a, this is a guy that killed JFK. Uh, yeah, he at some point, he, little known fact, he went to like not just Russia, but Belarus, my part of, you know, the ex Soviet Union. And he worked at the same television plant, you know, like making play. They're he worked serious? at the same like factory as my grandfather did for a while. So when I think, or when my grandma retired, somehow, like as part of a reward, they gave her a big color TV. Um, uh, my my uncle actually remembers Lee Harvey Oswald because people would point him out and they'd be like there's an American and my uncle who's like this big I mean, you've met him. He's like got these that huge uncle? muscles. That uncle. And Have he you was met like, her uncle?
1: No. I love My her uncle. uncle.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. My uncle's got muscles. He's very
2: scary. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Now he's all covered with muscles.
2: He, like, when I first met him, he, <laughs> he wasn't was, like. He them. was always. I mean, he, he, he was strong, but now he's. But now he's
0: almost gone. 70. And it's like, yeah. yeah, the muscles are even bigger. <laughs> but but, but it, his memory of Lee Harvey Oswald is, um, God, that guy's an American. But like, I thought they had good food there. He's such a wimp. He's got no <laughs> muscle at all. He was a wimp, yeah was he <laughs> He was I'm currently
1: le- reading a uh, Libra right now about it and and it's a great book but yeah,
0: um but but the point is we had a TV the last two years there and the only thing on ever would be like these communist cartoons propaganda <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah but it was so exciting like cartoons to try like, to get you to like, obey we, the state we would like wait for you know yeah we would wait for like the cartoon to go on and it was half an hour in Russian and half an hour in Belarusian with these like I don't know basically muppet type things like, praising Lenin, but it was, like, it, like, like, TV was, like, so much more entertaining than anything else that I, I, I don't understand how kids make it through, like, what, like, in these devices, if you see a kid react to, like, a, an iPhone I game. I mean, huh? I think
2: absolutely, 100%, this, this is what is terrifying to me, because I was a hyperactive kid. I, w- I mean, you know, at that term, they didn't use attention deficit disorder. They were uh-huh. hyperactive and they didn't medicate. They just stick you in a class with, you know, kids that were drooling on themselves and stuff. <laughs> and the thing is, I entertain myself by drawing incessantly and uh-huh. reading and running around and playing harmonica and being very active physically and also very. Um, creative you know like in, in junior high I, we start a magazine with another kid and he wrote poetry and I did cartoons and then I did theater and so I think none of that would have happened if uh, if this if the internet had been around because uh-huh. it, it, for somebody who has attention deficit, it's just endless stimulation and so I think what we really don't know is what the end result will be what we've lost from people who would have to learn to do things. You know, I've talked about this a lot with JP because he was another nerdy kid that was just drawing all Uh the time, you know. And I think that we are at such a profound change. Like what happened uh, really basically about 10, 15 years ago is... So profoundly different than what things were like before, mm-hmm. and a much bigger... I think the digital revolution is much bigger than the industrial revolution. Oh uh, no doubt. It's it's there's so many things on so many levels. The value of so many things have changed. So, for instance, um, the value of music has changed forever, absolutely, because you cannot sell anything. You can't sell like forget about like you know you know the very big pop stars at the top who have like giant corporations. behind them, mm-hmm. But essentially uh, anything you make is online immediately and free. huh. And anybody under a certain age literally doesn't purchase music. It's free. it's free. So anything you make is free. That changes the value, the actual value, how we value. Like when I was a kid and I wanted to listen to Blind Blake... You'd have to go and find it. You couldn't so find hard to it. And you'd find get it. this record. It was so hard to find. It was amazing. And some like weird company had reissued uh-huh. this. And you'd listen to it. It was like a tunnel into the past. It's a treasure. And it was like you were finding some archaic, essential, beautiful mystery from the past. Now, if you want to look up any obscure musician on it's all YouTube, on Spotify it's either. all there. No, on YouTube. And so. It doesn't mean as much because but don't you think yeah you, like you don't have to work for it. You don't have like this is what I find with teaching is that students like when I was in art school, I was obsessed with books, not unlike Dina, but I spent all my money, like I remember taking a bus to Phil, to New York from Philadelphia and I there I got this issue of Cox lyrics, um all the drawings of Pontormo, which was uh Crappy. It was terrible reproductions, but it was really, it was like 75 bucks for an art student in the 80s. It was a lot of money, and I bought this book, and I would just spend days and days, like, just going over these crappy little reproductions, and it meant so much to me. Yep. And it, 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 it was like you had to work to find it. Now, on my phone, I can find every drawing ever made by Pontormo in great reproduction. And the, the, the problem is, what does that mean? Because the proliferation of everything means everything is is valued less. I couldn't
1: agree more, and I think I the the moment that was so clear to me was the first time I bought an iPod, uh-huh. and I had like to your point, like Blind Limb and Jefferson in a Beatles song next to whoever you know, like. Cardi B or whatever, all of a sudden it's a shuffle of a mix and nothing mattered. It wasn't like the, in that context, the Beatles didn't stand out as better. than It's just a wash.
2: You know what I'm saying? I just think it's it's not – there are different aspects of it. One of the aspects of, is if it takes no effort to get something, you value it different – than the effort you make on your own. And I think that also is is related to, you know, going back to the question that Dina asked, when I got, so when I went to uh, art school, you know, I got out of high school, I went to RISD, and I really wanted to learn how to paint. And there weren't ateliers. Mm-hmm. And there was no clear way to find out. And then, you know, this is a whole long story, but I spent a year traveling. I did design and graphic art I just I went back to Ann Arbor and I walked to every shop in town and I said I can make anything you want so I, I you know I did illustrations for uh, you know advertising I did ice cream signs for an ice cream place I made $1,500 and I took I hitchhiked to, to New York and went on standby and I spent a year traveling on seven dollars a day living outside and playing music on the streets and I went to all over europe and i went to different art schools to visit to see about art schools and when i came back to america i was like okay i'm gonna learn how to paint the only place i could find was Papho, and it was really just a few teachers there who were interested in traditional painting mm-hmm. and pretty much all of us from the generation in the 80s um there were Number of things. Number one, we were all traumatized because being a representational artist was considered the most uncool, stupid ass thing you could do. Yeah. Fucking stupid <laughs> ass thing to do because it was widely known that the painting was dead, that you should be a conceptual artist, or if you were going to deal with aesthetics at all, it would be minimalism. Uh-huh. So we were the uncool kids.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Second, anybody who wanted to be representational had to kind of learn on their own. There weren't, there was nothing like uh, the New York Academy, right? Mm -hmm. There was one teacher who had information at PAFA, Arthur DaCosta. uh, I've heard of him. Right. He was an important influence on a lot of the students there. And then there were people like Sidney Goodman, uh, Mm -hmm. who was working, who was very influential, Ben Kamihira. So, this, the, City itself had a history because of the school that had gone back and there was a continuum. I mean, that's what's kind of cool. Like I studied with somebody who studied with somebody who studied with Aikens. Um, But all of us were traumatized by teachers who told us you can't do that. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You're useless. Like people don't know now how profoundly restricted because uh, minimalism was a kind of almost like Protestant extremism you know like mm-hmm. you were not allowed to do anything out of this very narrow box and so most of us had certain residual aspects of self-taught language you know um, now I see ranges of facility over across the board with students that just didn't exist at that time uh-huh. um, and Again, you know, like if I wanted to find out about a representational painter, where would you see it? Because it wasn't published in books. There wasn't schools that did it. And, you know, you would hear about this guy, you know, but you wouldn't necessarily know about him or be able to see books about it or reproduction. Now you get online and there are endless, you know, videos Uh of how to do this and that. And and so it's a completely different world. I think the one a very big factor and the most disturbing factor to me, uh, both as an artist and a teacher, is one of the biggest differences is the relationship of drawing to photography. Because basically, growing up, you know, you'd be a kid in like fourth grade. Maybe you'd, you know, like my wife always says, you know, in high school, she did a copy of the cover of Aqua Alum, you know, mm. like Jeff, <laughs> Jeff uh-huh. Little. Uh-huh. You know, that would be the extent to which you were using photographic images. But cameras are expensive. We were not, you weren't necessarily good at photography. And there was also this idea that you needed to work from life. So most of us, and I can say that of the people in my generation, Use photography, if at all, in a very different way. Now, I think because, again, and this has to do with value, like I have in my phone right now 30,000 photos. 30,000, that's more photos than I took in my entire, Uh you know, early adulthood and childhood. And So people start from photography immediately and they bypass drawing from life and they bypass even worse drawing from their imagination. Mm -hmm. So we have people apply to school, have like crazy chops for photographs. Like I'm not very good at working from photography. I will be honest. I suck at it. I don't feel comfortable with it. Uh, And it's not a question of morality at all. Photography is great. Mm -hmm. I love photography. I love traditional photography. I love it as a sort. There's nothing wrong with it. But the problem is the part of your brain that processes visual information is different from life because you're you're literally trying to um, decide and decipher a three-dimensional object, Mm -hmm. right? And from imagination. Those are different parts of your brain lighting up. But a flat to flat is literally a different part of your brain. And so it's like people who have like developed, you know, one arm, they have giant muscles, but the rest of the body is atrophied Uh because um, working from your imagination is fundamentally important in in representational art. In my opinion, in historical, most art ever made is from the imagination. It's from memory. It's not from life and it's not from, from pre-made images. Mm -hmm. So... You know, so getting back to the digital apocalypse, the main point I was making is that value, if you look everywhere, all values have shifted absolutely. So, you know, I also grew up with a lot of friends who were in photography. I have a lot of friends who are uh, photography curators in museums and so forth. So photography itself is completely lost value. Mm-hmm. there you know there's some crazy statistic that like every 3 minutes more photographs are downloaded than the entire 19th century i mean uh-huh. so it's like water and you know you have the apps that can make anything look like art and mm-hmm. and so literally the the value and this isn't to say that people don't make amazing things but when there's so much and it's so free and it's so constant its meaning and value change and so both with music and visual arts, the value, like the monetary value, the cultural value, has changed absolutely forever for all time, mm-hmm. and we still don't know what that means in the long run. Like, because this is the beginning of the digital apocalypse. Oh, uh, this is yeah. So it's compounding daily at a rapid Right. Place. So. Again, like I have more in common in some ways with my great-grandfather in the 19th century in terms of just how I grew up with images and how hard it was to see them and how exciting it was to see them, you know, and and music and all those cultural things mm-hmm. than what's happened in the last 5, 10 years. And it's the,
1: really... But the machines do it so well. Did you hear that? There's this great, uh, I think it was a radio lab, about the Bach piece, the missing Bach piece. Did you hear this?
2: Oh, and they had machines to try and... They, they basically
1: just put Bach algorithm in, this machine spit it out, and they played it in front of a bunch of uh, critics, you know? Uh-huh. Classical professional critics. And They were all talking about... The wonderful humanity in that work, which is hilarious. Like it's digital. It's like so it's like it does it so well. Like
0: I don't I, I don't know. I mean I still like for so me and Marshall disagree on that, like like I feel like it's, I feel like every generation says that it's apocalypse uh, like like you know, like like the region well, you know, of fooling professionals
1: into saying using terms about humanity and feeling in a piece where there's Um no well
0: Zap Zap well, might speak more to like what art critics are as a professional, I couldn't that's, tell that's, a difference.
2: I can't
1: imagine
0: I mean, anyone I, in this room I'm, could. I'm being,
2: you know, I'm being ironic about the term apocalypse. But
0: uh, by the way, by, by the way, that, that would be a really cool title for your episode. Could we use it?
2: Digital <laughs> apocalypse. I mean, it's a term, term I have coined that I want to
1: well, spread. Well,
0: uh, oh, okay, let's use it then. Well, we gotta um, be
1: catchier. Like when the snowstorm comes, it's snow <laughs> <No, laughs> But 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 here's the
2: point is you know what happened was you know and again it it parallels the industrial revolution but it's more extreme and it's also much more worldwide Um, I don't know you know what does that mean for
1: our
3: well you know they used to say that uh, the horses would be completely like people would just stop using horses forever after the cars were invented but what actually happened was if you had a horse, if you have a horse now that has so much more value because they're so much rarer
0: no. So, we're, we're so art, artists, so, of, so I it, work for horses. See, Wade, I, I find, like to think I'm glad that. Wade's
3: finally here because <laughs> <laughs> I've been arguing with these two
2: this like crazy. Yeah, I mean, come on, nobody has horses. There's no like people that horses are rich people that use horses. That's for what I'm saying. Fine. Well, that's, what, I mean. that's right. what I'm saying. So, they went but, back
0: to being like this luxury item exactly. that people no, like value no, do a luxury which, item. which is what art used to. Well, that's what I mean. Horses were. Wade, thank god you're
1: here. I'm just gonna sit back and be like, you can handle this. Horses were, you
2: talent. Exactly. And,
1: and right. Uh, and you know. Henry Ford also has the dumbest quote of all time, which is if if people if I gave people what they want, they'd want faster horses. And it's like, Henry Ford, the car was coming with or without you. It's the dumbest shit he's ever. Done. It's like that car was coming and there was no stopping it with or without Henry Ford, and the horses were No,
3: know. I think the value of actual paintings are gonna go up well, later I, on.
2: I think okay, so and, Here's the thing. So everything is digital. Everything is insubstantial. Everything is colored light. So an actual physical thing has a kind of yielding, nostalgic thingness that you can't reproduce it's because it's it's a physical
0: well, thing. Because it's still real. So, so I mean, I, I look at like, I mean, a huge amount of art on like, whatever, on on Instagram. But the the, the stuff I actually own, like, I don't know, I own a Caitlin Hurd that, like, I traded back in grad school. And, like, I don't know, I own a Michelle doll. Like, I never get sick of it. And, like, it keeps being a treasure. I think Mm -hmm. that's true. Mm -hmm. But but here's the
2: other aspect of this that we're not talking about. And this goes back to what we were saying about TV and then what we were saying about the internet is, okay, so that's true. But the problem in our lives is that our lives has broken down into thousands of small moments. I mean, even you, while we were talking earlier, you're doing this on your phone. The whole half time. Of the time, right. So what that does is it breaks down communication it breaks down interest it breaks down the the value of um, all things well
0: and and also each time you so, so I, I i keep my phone like off the table you know like 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 i keep it out of eyesight because every single time you check it even if it's for a second it breaks up concentration of, of like like any any conversation painting reading anything you do gets affected by that one second and all you did was like check to make sure I don't know whatever like. But so, it's so pointless to
2: fight it. It's, I mean, no, no, Let it's me not, just make, I make not, one point about, about this. <laughs> so the point is, because our attention is so divided, even if we care about music, even if we care about painting, it's fractured, so and it, true. it's competing. Everything in the world is competing with everything else, so everything is worth less because there's so many broken moments and values Mm -hmm. so when I was in art school like painting was important and there wasn't much competing with painting there wasn't there were other things Mm -hmm. there weren't you know, people posting, there weren't memes, there weren't little digital things, you, you didn't have movies at
1: home, everything was... What paintings are important weren't curated by a corporation like Facebook or Instagram.
2: Or, or even, you know, just, it's hard to explain what it was like in the 80s in Soho, when you would walk around on the gallery night and how, what a big deal it was, an intense... And, you know, like, I don't think even now if you go to Chelsea and you walk around, it's not the same thing. It's not vibrant.
0: It's a different
2: relationship to to stimulation. But,
0: I mean, I feel like a lot of the art really kind of sucks. I bet it sucked then, too. A lot of art sucked. But but it was still (laughs) exciting then. There's
2: always sucky art. In fact, I would say there's less sucky art now than then. I would say that there's generally things are better made. I would say there's much, much, much more diversity in image making, more diversity in the art world now. You know, it's hard for you guys to know how much it was dominated by the critics and how much there was like exclusion. You know, if you were a figurative artist, you were basically relegated to Uptown. And Uptown was a kind of moldy, tweedy place. And you were not cool, even if you were showing at a at a gallery that was considered a good gallery, you were still not cool and you would most likely not get reviewed. It was a very exclusive place. But to your point about value, you could, even as I I know a
1: lot of those like early 90s figurative painters, and they would show at like Herschel and Adler uptown and stuff, sell paintings for like 40, 50 grand out of art school. And that doesn't exist anymore. Like there was at least a channel that if you have big talent, now it's people going out of school being like cobbling it together. Because to your point, it's value. There's so much images out
2: there. Well, I mean, this is, this is you know, a, a, another thing I, I was thinking of talking about here. I mean, so I came out of school in the 80s, mid 80s. At that time, there was... Art became fashionable. It was mm-hmm. a funny thing. And people were suddenly getting famous directly out of school. Uh-huh. And it was like a kind of feeding frenzy. And even in provincial Philadelphia, where I lived, I left school having sold all my work, no debt. I had no, school was $3,000 a year. Wow. <laughs> I paid when I got out of school probably $300 for my apartment and I had commissions. Mm-hmm. So I, it was a different universe. Like I had a 4,000 square foot loft for the last 10 years in Philly that cost $600 a month. Uh And I had commissions from people buying work, not fancy people like upper middle class people who liked art and were interested in supporting it. It was a kind of fantasy for an artist really. And... Um, and it also started an expectation which I think has been very corrosive yeah. because my teachers did not expect to make a living out of school. And they their attitude was, you know, you spend 20, 30 years, you become a good artist, and then maybe you have a career. But my generation was like, I'm out of school. Where's my money? I want to be an uh-huh. art star. And that mentality reproduced itself after that. This idea that you could be an art star. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, in tandem with the rise in rent and the rise in tuition has caused a spiritual crisis in young artists because there's an expectation of something that's almost impossible at the same time there's phenomenal debt and it's very hard to, to live
0: and then in... you see like one or two of your classmates actually do it and that makes it even, even worse right. you were in a
2: potent class if you had two
0: So, so <laughs> well, it's I, 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 okay like one
2: but you okay. see it's a crisis it's a crisis because literally I left school with no debt and most of my peers had little or no debt I mean first off PAFA was inordinately cheap and Philadelphia was cheap But uh, it was really a very, very different... It's it's like a different world, absolutely. Uh Um, And I can't... I don't even... I think that this has caused... uh, I see so many problems in school and with uh, young artists because they take this as a new normal, the anxiety of debt and the anxiety of not making a living and uh-huh. then they leave school and within two years they are really freaking out the oh, average
3: man. debt right now is about a hundred k i
2: ask a student i have students all the time and i had you know i can't remember who it was that said oh i don't have that much debt i have like seventy thousand. i mean that's yeah. insane that would buy you a house yeah. in a lot of places in the country Which
3: means they're they're actually within a lifetime they probably won't be able to pay this off because oh, no, I think that it will all crash and burn. I don't think we're in a sustainable situation nope.
2: long term for college debt. And here, you know, um it's a complicated thing because I love teaching and I believe in teaching and I am extraordinarily proud of our school, which I think is really an exceptional institution. But I think nationwide, the situation, in fact, you know, the New York Academy is very cheap compared to a lot of schools. A lot of schools are much more expensive. Mm -hmm. So, I think nationwide we're in a situation that is unsustainable. And then, you know, there are all sorts of factors uh, in terms of the cost of living in New York. I don't know how anyone does it. Well, the problem is, you know, I see one thing about being both an artist and a musician is there's a lot of interesting parallels. Hmm. Um, the entire landscape that made somebody like David Byrne or Duke Ellington like that's gone because yeah. there are no venues. Their venues have closed. There's no place to actually go, and there's so many musicians that nobody has to get paid. Any musician you get music free at okay. any venue forever. Oh,
1: imagine this: you, you you talk music like the Rolling Stones, for instance, could go to bars underage. They could play. They could get paid for playing at 17. There will never... I, I I submit to this to you. There will never be another band on the planet of four people with, you know, rotating guitars that will
2: ever play as much on stage as the Rolling Stones ever again. And that is exactly a significant cultural thing because this is what's true. So, uh, same is true of the Beatles. Same is true of a lot of the older people, Wait, you really speak my language here. I'm right. happy I'm happy with this. <laughs>
1: Finally. In- so but who wants to I mean, I saw I saw read a report recently that there was Fewer kids uh, like going out and just do like breaking windows. Like even that's an important part. Because they're of all sitting on their. Phones. They'd rather <laughs> sit and, and do that. Like who's gonna go? Who the fuck's gonna go on dance at seventeen? You know, it's right.
2: like I got this. So just do this thing. Yeah, I think I think that we don't even have any idea what's happened now. I think, We're I, I think people, some people do. I, I think, think some
1: that, people feel. I feel it tangibly. Anytime I walk down the street, I'm like, it's already happened. Like the corrosive impact of... The TV fact that everyone on the phones. subway is
0: doing You don't even you have to see this, them do it so. just
1: in the language that people use and what they prioritize. Okay, like, so
0: so here's the story. So I, at least half the week, I live with a 13-year-old boy, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: he's on his computer all the time making memes and putting them on Reddit, right? But but if you actually talk to him, he's like a sweet, kind, curious, like he's all of the things that we like. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that like he's going through this phase like where this is readily available and like it can't stay, I, I mean, I don't understand memes right like I I don't find them funny or entertaining he keeps wanting me to look at them but if you actually talk to him about something else like he's someone with opinions who's curious who loves books who loves all sorts of stuff this is just what him and his friends do but Uh,
2: but it's normalized but like we smoke behavior that is uh, egregious yeah, I mean you know like, this is a thing like, wait, Trump is a product of the digital Armageddon because oh. he is <laughs>
0: he, the way he behaves digital Armageddon is even better than digital apocalypse <laughs> so, so
2: he's normalized it's It couldn't have happened before this moment because what he does is normalized by the internet and the internet normalizes him because this is what people see and read day in and day out. So it doesn't seem... I
0: mean, he's he's very good at manipulating it, but I I actually feel like... You don't even have
1: to be good at it. You just... It's just... It's all. It's like it's a dumbing down. It's like I don't know.
0: I feel like with with Trump specifically, he's. I mean, he's actually a product of excessive political correctness. Like like we we spend so much time. Which is a product of the internet. Like we spend so much time tiptoeing around stuff and not being able to like call things by their names. And here's this guy who's a total he's a total douchebag. But like he he names a bunch of things people have been too afraid to even like go near. um, that. But don't you see that as a direct product, the
1: hyper-political, um, product? all this is I like, see
0: him as like a character out of Dune, but Wade, go ahead. Well, I, yeah, I as, as we, a guest, we, Wade, we Wade is raising politics. his hand. <laughs> <Back to our laughs> yeah, no poli- yeah. Wait, 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 wait. I, have, I have a question before like, I, I don't know, before we have to even like, before we're like, oh, we're an hour and a half in and Wade is only 10. That year that you spent around Europe, like tell us about that. <laughs>
2: I mean, so I, I think if there's anything... I think that for in my life, having done that was the best possible thing I could have ever done and I think it's a kind of education that is profound because at 19 I was totally on my own. No cell phone, no economic help from anybody, mm-hmm. I had to fend for myself, mm-hmm. I had to get myself everywhere. I had to get myself in trouble, out of trouble, away from trouble. I probably
0: didn't know the language. I, I, I didn't know
2: the languages. And also, I saw culture in a way you just don't experience from another place. In other words, I spent, you know, I, I hitchhiked. Everything was self-directed. I wasn't dependent on other people. And I was totally on my own. I wrote I was like Dina Brodsky. I was writing like long, long letters all the time, uh, you know, and, and drawing and thinking. And I think at that age, it's. A profound experience.
0: It's funny because I, when I was nineteen, I did the exact same thing. Yeah, like, you're the last I, I didn't one, I didn't have Dina. After I that, they closed
3: a... the door. <laughs> I wanted no, to do no, all that. No, they never gave me the chance. No, no you know That's what, way They didn't parents. because
0: I actually, I probably did a, did that kind of thing. I mean, I, I spent a while doing it at nineteen, and that was the only time where I would just like sleep on doorsteps or park benches or I don't know, we church columns or whatever, but since I kept biking and I kept kind of doing stupid stuff well into my, you know, 20s or maybe early 30s, um, there's still kids doing it. There they is,
2: to... there is, and, you know, there there's another kind of movement, I forget what it's called, where they go and they work. Yeah, um, digital nomads. No, no, there's no? a name yeah. for no, this the, are... the, the organization, so the oh. people yeah. advertise and you go.
0: No, but, um, I, I mean, there's a little, uh, like, there's, kids some some kids who do it with infrastructure like working for somewhere or working for doctors out borders and like traveling right. that way but i've also met a few that were just totally unhinged like you were and like i was i mean i think the thing yeah. is that
2: it teaches you to not have fear it teaches you to feel that you can make your own life like i think the one thing i've been able to do is take risks and do things you know like uh deciding to be an artist, deciding to move to New York, deciding to start a band. And I think like, you know, I've traveled now the over forty countries with my band. I played in Siberia, I'm going to China in October. I've been to New Zealand. I've been to Borneo. And those are things I wouldn't probably have the ability or courage to do if I hadn't had the training at 19 to take risks to do things like that and to think that I can do that. And I think the one thing that it requires is a positive view of the universe, a feeling that people are good, and a feeling that you can try something and maybe succeed, you know? And so...
0: And maybe fail, but it's okay because... Like, you know, it's not going to kill you. Well, I
2: mean, something that he said earlier is it takes grit. Like, you don't give up. Um. I mean, I think the whole point about the arts is, uh, you know, the the famous Latin quote, uh, uh, Ars Longus Vita brevis." Art is long and life is short. This is something that people had and, you know, you'd see it in old academies in Europe. You know, it takes a long time to do something and it takes a long time to do it well and you can't give up. And, you know, you can't cry and moan and say, I didn't get this from this person and I didn't get the attention. Like, it's hard. You make stuff and, you know, the hardest part for, for an artist That I always tell students, like, students are, like, unhappy in school, and I didn't get this, and this person, like, you have no idea. This is the easy part. Like, five years down the road, that's the hard part, because you're out of school, you're in some godforsaken studio in the bowels of some outer borough. And no
0: one cares enough to even criticize you. (laughs) Nobody's
2: asking to see it. Nobody's looking at it. Nobody, like, you have to do that on your own. And Uh that takes... That It's a life force. It takes a life force. And that life force is positivity and grit. I can do this. And nobody's going to reward you for negativity. Nobody's going to reward you for being negative in your pursuit of being art. Yes, some people might briefly. But in the end, you have to get along with people. You have to... You have to make something that people want. You have to make something that you care about, and you have to do it against the odds of uh, no money, no time, and uh, no energy. Yeah, uh huh. And for don't the, be petty so or true. negative. And for the, so the record, we really I, I have the theory
0: that like anyone who's hitchhiked, like at any point of their life, will actually automatically just learn all of these things because you have to like spend so many hours. Part of parts of which are like boring, yet kind of like exciting because like, you what, never
2: knew. Well, I mean, hitchhiking well, was there, the most exciting well, thing in the world because you'd there, be there and, and you never knew who would come. You know, you
0: know what, Wade? For, for me, hitchhiking had this thing which it actually has in common was um, hanging out with like babies, where some, it's it's both boring and scary simultaneously. Right. So you and, you and you never know what comes next. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, and I, you know, I I I yeah, had uh, some
2: bad experience in hitchhiking. i had Um, amazing experiences but but
0: but, but you you basically learn how to talk your way into situations talk your way out of situations just talks as a person kept driving um and you know and get off in like a strange place just because some trucker dropped you off there (laughs) i don't think
1: hitchhiking is the key like i think it's but it's anything like that it's like trusting yourself like I've been to a lot of foreign countries. I haven't gotten a ton out of it, honestly. Really? Yeah. I mean, you see neat things and you experience culture and it's mind expanding for sure, but nothing as much as being 15 and knowing I had to support myself, get a job, buy a car off the neighbor that would start and like... You know, figure out how to get it going and like all that turmoil and figure out the narrow length of paychecks to buying gas at a young age was that's it. It's just independence and confidence. I feel like Wade's experience is so much more potent if, it, if it's with, if you're going with a group or I did a semester in, in Rome that was with like a school. It's like, this is not. I, I think really. this is a
2: question of degrees. I do think that the. One primary difference, again, is phones. Because I just literally didn't have a way to communicate. Like I would write a letter to my parents and say, okay, I'm going to call you in a month from Rome at three o'clock and then you'd, you'd get, you'd have to get these jetains to put them in the phone. <laughs> you'd like buy this thing and then I've the phone it. wouldn't work. And then you'd like, you'd just try for an hour and you couldn't. So then like the next day you'd come back and you finally get through and you'd make a collect call and your father would say, this is really expensive. We can't talk. Uh-huh. You know? And so you really felt like you, you were really not. on your own. You were really on your own. And so that
1: experience and I think that's I think that's more the formidable aspect of it because that's where the confidence comes in. It's not it's not going to the Sistine Chapel with a tour group. But it's you know? also
2: that you didn't have the same level. You know, even when I went to Turkey, which everybody said was terrifying and stuff. You know, I wasn't expecting um, terrorism, or I wasn't. You know, like there was. Mm-hmm. It, it's just the way people thought was different. And, and, and that, that's hard to quantify. I think that, um, it is different that, you know, everywhere you go, there's Starbucks and everywhere mm-hmm. you go, there's like, you know, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mm-hmm. And, and I think also that Eastern Europe was very different. It's hard for this. This is in my lifetime. Uh, The the, the end of the Cold War was one of the most significant possible things because it was part of your consciousness Mm -hmm. and that like you guys don't have that consciousness, but there was them and there was us, Uh you know, and now maybe that's coming back, but you know, yeah,
3: tenfold.
0: No, it's not. Come yeah, on, it is. I, I, I'm. I, hey, I'm from where the Zem is. You know, like it's 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 not near. It, look, is it like whatever's what, what happening you, right now? Because it's, it's, not it's not just more outlets. As bad, no, it, uh, no, like it, like you, like the ways that like my childhood was like America was the enemy. Um, like the books I, re- I read, America kept black people and slaves. Are, are no, too. well, no, no, but no, in like these, these Russian propaganda books, like you you heard about like bananas because black people were kept on plantations in chains picking them and the white capitalists were like super fat and had like 18 diamond watches and that's just what you read and so was so you expected you know like that was the enemy and i'm sure that, i'm sure that you know growing up here you're you, like you know the russians weren't that great either Oh, no, I, you know, I mean we, i
2: had nightmares all through childhood of new nuclear arm i mean that was common that in in and even the the generations slightly before mine you know i didn't have to do the fallout shelters oh the fallout shelters were everywhere but i didn't go through the thing where you have to hide under the desk okay Um, but i mean the thing is is that it was literally you were always aware that at any moment the end of the world could happen i mean that's a very different thing, but the funny thing is, we didn't have other fear on the same level.
3: Didn't um, we go through a couple of that a couple of months back with North Korea? But a nobody, little taste of it, a but of nobody it. really. But not cared. like bay of pigs. That, yeah, yeah,
2: it's no, kind no, of funny.
1: No, to Wade's no point, no like really. it does seem severe out there, and no one really cares. It's just what's next? Oh, yeah, nuclear war? Fun? What's yeah, next? Yeah, exactly. What <laughs>
3: Let's let's try and make this a more positive conversation. Oh. How do we do <laughs> yeah, that? that?
0: Yeah, All right, all right. So, what, kind what would of you moved.
3: recommend, uh, for example, some uh, the the positivity? The, yeah, the, 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 the positivity kids growing podcast. up now. <laughs> what what do do we could do? they reap these? Um, <laughs> you know, these experiences, how can they go and... I mean, I think there's still places you can go that are astonishing
2: and pl- things you can see and cultures. I mean, I think the one thing is that travel is much cheaper now, which is such a, an amazing thing. I mean, that's that's incredible. And I think that, um, you know, things change one way and they don't change the other way and things... I, I think, you know, the question is... How does one, how does one make it as an artist, you know? Mm. And there's certain things I see. One is you gotta be unbelievably stubborn and patient. You know, you have to just keep doing it and you know, like I see, you know, somebody will come to visit the school and they'll talk about their work, you know, and, and you know, and the student like, oh, I don't like that work. It's awful. And I'm like, I'm just grateful that somebody gets up and talks about their story and their life because everybody who gets to be, you know, 60 and they're still doing it, that's like right away. I'm I am proud and I'm impressed. It's, it's hard. It's beautiful and everybody's story is their own. And I see that even though we're told well you have to do this and this and this, in fact, there are lots of different ways of being artists. There's lots of different ways to, to define success. And I think that we get stuck on certain ideas that we're told are the way to do it. And I think that's bullshit. I think, you know, It's just about making stuff. That's all it is. And Mm -hmm. in the end, um, you know, God bless you. You know, you keep doing it and you do it. And it's not necessarily about fame or money or success. And those things are great. But in in the end, that's not the only metric for for doing things. And I think that... um, Yeah, i got to have a romantic love of it in the end. You know, it's about... The one thing I learned from my teachers that I still remember that still saves my ass is this romantic love of art, like the idea of art, like being in love with art. And... Being love, in love with the thought of making things. And I think that's what it comes down to in an end, you know, yeah. and then there are practical issues like how do I make a living without getting thoroughly exhausted or distracted or bummed out, you know, like mm-hmm. how do I find a way to make a living that I feel good about and do this, you know, and well, I think that's the that's the practical aspect of it.
1: And I think that's so beautiful, that concept and almost more beautiful In light of new challenges that we've talked about is that there are so many of everyone in this room, all our listeners or whatever people at the schools we're teaching and working in are just people doing something with their hands, laboring over something, improving themselves day in and day out when it's
2: hard to do. And that's like, could you imagine a more beautiful way to spend your life? That's what I like about you guys, actually. This is something that I'm impressed. You know, I was saying this. You weren't here. But, you know, I because I've known you and Tun for how long now? When did you guys graduate? 2006.
0: I mean, we were like in our early 20s. Right, we were, so it was like, over like, 10 so years ago. So like, we almost- and I was
3: the dude, if you remember. I, I You
2: were very... Right? Um, But I I mean,
0: like, we were three years over being actually in our teens. Right. When we were in your class. But the
2: thing that impresses me with both of you is your resourcefulness, but also, you know, you're doing this. You, you clearly love things. You love art. You both, you curate shows. You make stuff. And you, you, you're keeping alive in excitement for something without, um, cynicism. And and I think that's that's like precious and beautiful and noble and something that I admire in, in you guys a lot. And I don't I don't see it that often actually. I I, I see a lot of you know the um, there are two two of the biggest demons for artists. The two um, mortal wounds um, are jealousy and bitterness. You know, because yeah. I think bitterness is is an emotion like jealousy that harms most the person that experiences it. You know, because in the end, nobody asked us to do this. We decided. It's not like somebody anoints you and we, say, we, we, you will be an artist and you're going to get this much money. money. So, yeah. you know, bitterness is is this idea that somehow you deserve more than you've gotten. But of course, nobody gave you a deal. Nobody said you will get anything. Mm -hmm. So bitterness is entirely self destructive and it's profoundly common because it's a way of dealing with dashed hopes, you know? Mm -hmm. And jealousy is the same emotion turned against others, you know? I mean, I I can't remember who, uh, maybe it uh, was Oscar Wilde that said, if you want to know jealousy, just spend time with artists, (laughs) you know? Because Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's, you always, and, and of course, with the internet, jealousy is a daily experience because, like, oh my God, look at this. And they, because everybody's just posting, man, I just yeah. did this and so this. So much foam Right. And so, um, I think it's harder than ever to avoid those cancers on, on the soul of creativity. But I think that they are really, there. And I think that's the thing one has to constantly be cognizant of as you go forward, you know, as a young artist and through your life. Um, and, you know, one benefit of being an old fart is that I see all the many people in my milieu who I've known, you know, I see them go up and I see them go down. I see them go up and down and up and down and people who, and you realize like, you know, your story is your own. Almost everybody, you know, people who, you know, I knew, you know, 20 years ago, am like, my God, they can't believe it. You know, they sell this work like a fancy gallery. And then it's like, you know, they experience what everybody experiences, which are downturns in the market, problems with selling work, all sorts of factors that suddenly they're not a golden child anymore. And then they have to, you know, it's just... That's the nature of this game. You well,
1: what do you think is the hardest part about being an artist? You know, if we're looking through your life now and it's gotten into a financial realm in that way. But is there a like an emotional hardship that you deal with being an
2: artist? Yeah, people- of course. I think that everybody's creative process also goes in and out and stuff. I think that... There's not an artist I have known that doesn't have dry spells mm-hmm. or who doesn't at some time feel crippled with, uh, you know, self-criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's not an artist I've known who hasn't thought, oh, I'm going to get this, this is going to happen, and then be disappointed, you know? Um, I just think that, it. you know, I, I always tell my students, remember... Uh, this is not a sprint. This is the long race. It's a long race. And if you think of it as a sprint, you're going to tire yourself out and get hurt. You know, um, I think that we go in and out of thinking about the validity of our ideas and maybe we change them, you know, um, you know, I look at the work I did in my early 20s and my God, it was awful. It was just unbearably bad. You know, like now some of the people who bought it are dying and it's going up for auction. And I just, it's terrifying to see this stuff online. You know, um, and much worse than young people I know now making representational art. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I've seen people make amazing work and then 10 years later, yep not so much mm-hmm. so everybody's story is different and everybody's story changes in ways they would never expect in terms of the creative process you yeah. know? so i had never intended to be a professional musician i mean this is the irony that was not a goal i had in life and i have been lucky to have a career in music you know every year i think ah, it'll be over it can't keep going because in fact, popular music, music world is much more fickle than the representation, you know, like the image making world.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, because music is popular by nature. Uh, and I want to get to
1: your music, but I want to ask one question first. So I said, what's the hardest thing? Now, what is your favorite thing about being a long haul painter? Like, a, you know, what
2: what are the benefits to a life? I think the, the, the one other thing that happens as you get older is that you care less About your relationship to other art like when you're young and you like you look at paintings and I wish I could paint that way and you know you want to make a difference and change the world in the end you're kind of like you know fuck it I just want to make something I like Mm -hmm. and you stop thinking about it in a larger context and in a way that's very liberating you know and you know because um, this is a spiel I always get it give as a teacher uh, so you, you both heard it <laughs> see if you remember it now that it's been 10 years There, there's a needle for three different things so there's what what you want to do what you think you should do and what you do and those are all different things so Ooh. you know like I want to learn how to paint you know I I need want to learn how to paint beautiful flesh but and I think I should do giant paintings with lots of people running around doing important stuff. And I tend to do still lifes and I'm good at still lifes. Huh. You're miserable because nothing is in alignment. Uh-huh. But if you want to paint still lifes and you're good at painting still lifes and that's what you think you should do, you feel good. huh. Yep. And most of the time, those needles are kind of swinging in different places mm-hmm. um, because we carry with us expectations of what great art is and what we should do and how we should grow, but we also have certain tendencies that we have, that we we do and we enjoy it, and that's what we do. And I think as you get older, sometimes you settle into, like when I was younger, I wanted to do big paintings, and now I kind of don't like big paintings. Like, I, I think about it, I don't like big paintings. This makes, makes I've, I've actually... feel really good. Like, most of my favorite paintings are not so big,
3: yeah. Uh huh. you know,
2: like if I think of like you know one of my favorite paintings in London is this Felix Vallotton painting. It's like this big. It's not a big painting. I love that painting. I love Vermeer. You know, I like Titian. Most of Titian's paintings are pretty
0: small. Or just like as far as painting, as far as art goes, like size doesn't matter. The, well, size like, matters mean culturally in terms of
2: how we grade things. You know, um, my well, friend Alex always says, you want a big career, you have to do big paintings. It's a signifier I, that this thing is so important it can only live in a museum I don't know, or a town. Well,
0: but yeah, but I feel like that, that whole, I mean, and that is how we grew up. We grew up like with like, yeah, big paintings are more important because they're big. But if you, you know, like if, if all of you guys, I feel like, like, think about your museum experiences or like gallery, what, whatever changed your, life, or, I mean, the paintings, if, if any changed your life, or whatever made you feel something or sink or Some of them were big, but some of them were small, and probably none of it depended on size. It, it but there's probably so many other factors involved. I
2: mean, what oh. Well, but it, well, and okay. So about size, kefir does depend on size, yeah. and vermeer depends on size. That is, a vermeer bigger would be less than the vermeer the size it is because it's an intimate yeah. experience. But how?
0: Yeah, and, but but how much you like something doesn't depend on. Like you've probably liked very big things or very tiny things. Uh, And like, and you weren't looking at it being like, oh man, that thing is so small. I love it because of that. It was probably like, this is so good and profound and gorgeous and it happens to be small or it's so good, profound and gorgeous. It happens to be large. (laughs)
2: But I think, you know, in answer to that, I think that, you know, as you are farther along, at a certain point you have to just do what you do and you don't, look over your shoulder as much yeah. uh, either at your contemporaries or the dead guys. And I think that's a certain liberation. And also, you know, your work spawns itself, you know, that is your influences are less other things than your own work. And and that's not to say you don't have crises because you do. Um, you have crises all the time about what it is um methodology or you know I mean I just saw a friend recently who's a very well known painter and she has a show up now and she was like every time the show is up I think this may be my last show huh. like she's in that after you know experience mm-hmm. where she just feels like uh, maybe I don't have anything more to say because I've done it all in this you know mm. and, and, and I think that's a common experience you know if you look at Creative experience, it varies. It's weird. It's like the animal world. Like, why do turtles live so long? I don't know. Does it seem important that we have turtles around forever? But it does, because they live really long. But like a mathematician basically does their best work from 17 to 27. And after that, they don't have the same creative ability. It's neurological. And painting is one of the few art forms that actually lasts long Uh, Um, But for instance, pop music, if you look at it, very few musicians, like it's basically like 18 to 28 and then it's over. Like Uh after that, they just repeat themselves. They don't have the same creative cultural effect. So in a way, as painters, you're kind of lucky. You're more like a parrot or a turtle.
0: But um, All right, so um, we're back from our break. Uh, I'm not sure we ever really introduced Wade Schumann, but uh, we did. 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 Was I not there? No, you were
1: here. here. Some of you was here. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, apparently my concentration is really not impaired by <laughs> uh, by the digi- by the digital apocalypse. Uh.
2: Uh, right. Uh, armageddon. I think we settled. Uh, on yeah, yeah, yeah. Armageddon. Yeah, Armaged- yeah, uh, let's
3: send it off on a good note. Anybody have any good ideas of how to change the world?
0: Uh, change, change, uh, change <laughs> Wait. The- now, what is
3: the meaning of life? You
1: <laughs>
2: said we come back to it. Um. Well. Every second is more amazing than you can possibly understand. And most of the time, we're not paying attention to that. Hmm. But You just need to try always... A bit to pay
0: attention do, do, do to. do you do sometimes hmm. feel like, you know, like let's say if something horrible happened, like the next minute? I, I, I don't even know. We walk outside and, like, I don't know, brick falls on Marshall's head and splits it open, he dies. And that's like, and, and we're all there to witness it, or, you know, like our loved ones get. Why, Marshall? Why not you? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, don't kick she, me when I'm down. She'd be so distraught.
1: She was trying to paint the worst scenario yeah
0: <laughs> Well, I've got so much fat padding right now, this brick could probably just kind of bounce right off. Um, but, but, do you, but do you feel like, you know, like like sometimes if you, I don't know, get into a fight with a person you love or like, you know, or get really upset over, I don't know, how stupid some show and Chelsea is, um, but like then something like that would happen or like, you know, um, and you would think, I should have appreciated every single second. No, I before, think that like, all the, the time. I think,
2: yeah. I do not understand boredom. Like the whole concept of boredom is beyond the whole concept is beyond me. Like I think about death all the time. Maybe that's why I never get bored because I think of death is always always possible. And so, which you would think I would eat better food. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm logical, but, but but I mean I. You know, it's just um, like this is it. If you think of creativity, like. Think of the most creative art you've ever seen, the most astonishing art, and mm-hmm. you realize that's only a product of even more astonishing creativity. Like the person who's walking around is an astonishing thing. It lives, it breathes, it eats, it excretes, it's got uh-huh. DNA that goes back millions of years. And there's so many it,
0: things that could go wrong in the body. Any and they the don't. Moment, but they don't. Right. <laughs> so
2: creativity is a way of saying, well, that's amazing, but... All creativity comes from some unknown creative source that is everything. And so, you know, part of art is it just makes you a little bit astonished, but it's just a fraction of of the smallest fraction of everything. So, you know, one of the benefits of being an artist is that you can actually remember that, how incredible things are. You know, I often think of just a still life, and you'll appreciate this, is that, just looking at something, anything, allows you. Like everything is overwhelming. We're basically not designed to. We're basically like unconscious. Like we're not designed to understand and 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 perceive everything. Uh-huh. But if you have one thing, you know, like a rock or a cup, and you look at it, you you can understand a little bit the astonishing aspect of of, of existence, the fact that existence is, uh-huh. and that's to me, fundamental the fundamental part of, of what an artist gets to do. You know, like, that's our privilege. Like, we have the privilege to be able to appreciate existence. Mm-hmm. And, and in a pure sense, sometimes. You know, I think that that's often overlooked because we think of the social aspect and making money and all this. But the bottom line is you get to, like, appreciate the creative existence of being... Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and that's the greatest gift in life, you it's, know.
1: That's so beautiful. You, you came through that by starting with the idea of death. And I think almost every artist we've had at some point mentions death. And do you think your astonishment at the planet you're on, the universe, makes you aware of that? Because it's such a precious gift. You want to, like, document it, notate it, and...
2: Well, you're probably interviewing a bunch of middle-aged people. (laughs) No, I mean, listen, at a certain point, uh, you're surrounded by falling soldiers. You know, I have two friends with cancer now. Uh, My father has Parkinson's um, and he's 90. Mm -hmm. Like at a certain point in life, people start dying and that's what happens. Mm -hmm. And um, that's... That is the problem is that when you're young, death is a theory and sometimes a romantic theory yeah, yeah. uh in middle age it's not a theory it's an absolute fact and uh your your sense of being what you're willing to do, what you waste time i mean you know I still have stupid petty fights with my wife, and I still you know grumble about this thing or that thing, but uh when you're in your twenties. You are clueless because you really don't. It's you don't get it,
1: Uh you know,
2: and that's why people waste their time with a lot of things uh, when they're younger. Um, You know, like the amount of time I wasted in my twenties is just mind boggling, (laughs) you know.
3: Use this wasted on the young, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah.
2: Well, but but I mean, I think uh, I I do think that awareness of death is part of being an artist in a sense. I really do too. If consciousness. If being aware is a part of it, I mean, if you think of, of uh, really great art, there's a consciousness of mortality usually embedded. Because that's the mm. beauty. Like if it went on forever, I can't imagine
1: our efforts being as significant as happening in a finite I 70 know. years. You have these 70 years. 70? 70? Uh-huh. how well, life expectancy is over 70 now, right? It's, it's like in 80s. the 80s. Yeah. Don't <laughs> take anything away.
0: I don't know. Marshall. I feel like it's so short, though. Whatever we've got there's like so not enough of it like 80 80 years is nothing and like the first bunch of years you figure you're you spend trying to figure out like how to live and how to wipe your own butt or whatever like how to entertain yourself and the last 10 years you might be trying to figure out some of the same things but you know like but you're getting worse at them every uh you know every day but but i like i like like to me it's death is so terrifying and i'm so not okay with it and and i it kind of drives me nuts when people are like i'm not scared of death like like of course uh, 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 we should should be be. we should be Uh, like uh, i'm I'm, like scared and i'm i'm like furious that we're all gonna die (laughs) because you like life so it makes me so mad and Uh, you want
1: and you want to contribute to life with your with you're creating life you're creating artwork you're trying to make the planet
2: a little better I don't no, know. I, I hope she so. she I just should... want to live. The... Did you, you, you? Did you read Elias Canetti? Uh, no. He really. No, Dina. There something is such you a thing. There is such a thing that you. Know, I have not. All right, read you everything. need to read. You need to read Elias Canetti. Do you know who he was? He won the Nobel Prize. He, he was a very interesting guy. He was a uh, half English, half Bulgarian Jew who grew up and wrote about the time between the two wars. And he was in Vienna during the time of Freud, and uh, he was knew Alma Mahler. And he wrote there are three books he wrote about his life that are just unbelievable. One's called "The um, Tongue Set Free," "A Torch in My Ear," and "The Play of the Eyes." And he's this incredibly passionate man, but he talks all the time about how he hates the concept of death and he can't live with the idea of death. Um, uh, he also wrote a book called Otto de Fe about a man who burns himself alive in his library. And he wrote a book, very famous book on sociology called Crowds in Power about the psychology of crowds, which would oh, be very yeah. useful at the moment. Uh-huh. Um, because he experienced, he saw the brown shirts and the rise of Nazis. Mm-hmm. So you should, you would, um, Dina, I'm, you would I'm, love I'm, it. I'm
0: you read it tonight because thanks to the the proliferation of information and the fact that the kendall just allows you to do this (laughs) stuff Um,
2: i'm I'm shocked you haven't read him
0: uh, you know right now i'm probably not nearly as well educated as you think i am Uh,
2: Uh, you've read more than all three of us here in the room beside you
1: so wade we got uh your early life a little bit of the middle the meaning of life from you what does the future hold I'm for I'm charging
2: you? extra for the meaning of life
3: <laughs> <laughs> we already saw we'll,
1: we'll
2: pass a hat at, Clark, at the <laughs> end of this there was a great uh, statements about buying me dinner here which is not materialized <laughs> Wait,
0: do you want me to take you out for dinner or are you afraid of my potential stomach flu? I I am
2: a little discouraged by that. Um, So, (laughs) what what, was. Did
0: we promise him dinner?
1: Yes. Any
2: dinner I wanted. (laughs) I don't remember
1: that. I
0: might have have done that. Wait, do you want me to take you out for dinner?
1: Dinner at Salmagundi on me anytime you want. So, so what was your question? What's the future hold for you? For me? What What are you looking to? What do you want to do at the end of your life? What do you want to have said? Oh,
2: wow, those are two different things. Let's do them both.
1: Um, I,
2: I have about... One, two, three, four, five, six... I have like seven paintings that I need to finish. Okay. That I've been working on over time. Uh, so I'm thinking very much of those paintings. Uh, and has, also, has anyone seen these paintings? Not really... Um Not some people. I mean, I. Just like I, I'm rivers. one of these people that feel my work is crappy till it's done. Mm-hmm. So, um and just thinking about transitions of image making, like what kind of images? And some of the work is contradictory, which I like. You know, like I have a series I was working on the on virtues, um, which are all made up creatures, kind of. Um, and then the other ones are. I remember much, that that was a sh- one was a sheep, right? Oh, uh, there's a, uh, uh, it's a, it's a bull with a boy's face. Yes, and then that's there's right. a, uh, a fish with a man's face. I and saw then the there's bull. There's a self-portrait that's of me as a baboon. Oh, uh, great! And so the virtues are humor, um, um, sacrifice, and uh, fortitude. Okay. These are just my own ideas. So, like, I think of humor as the greatest, one of the greatest virtues. It's mm-hmm. not one of the cardinal virtues, but I think it's the thing that distinguishes us as, like, makes us human is the capacity to I think humor. so, too. Uh, like, my cat kind of has a sense of humor, but it largely involves biting me in the ankle. And it's <laughs> not very...
0: Uh, maybe he might be communicating something else by that. Um, uh, yeah, but
2: he's hungry. Yeah. Uh, uh, but there's a great story about that humor, which I think is, which you will like, Dina, is there was a, there's a building in Moscow opposite the Kremlin uh, that was called the Embankment. You ever heard of this building? And it was built for the intelligentsia and the people in the party. And over the years, Stalin would, people would come and just take people when they would never be seen again. And there's a story of this woman who they came and took her away. And the last thing she said when she turned to her daughter was, never lose your sense of humor. And then they took her and she never saw her again. And I think of that as like the only thing that saves us in our darkest moment Mm -hmm. is our ability to, to have some, to see... Uh, the absurdity
0: in things. We don't like, kind of laugh at ourselves. I feel like I, I mean, yeah. like I feel like if we can't, if we lose the ability to laugh at ourselves, then you know, then the terrorists have already won. It's, and it
2: it's a way of understanding the complexity of life. You know, so I hope I maintain my humor mm-hmm. in the future. Um, I think um, you know, hopefully, I will keep teaching and keep painting and keep doing the music. Um,
1: you know uh, we're all critical on ourselves what
2: are you more critical on your painting or your songwriting painting because I've been painting all my life and I do it from a different place because I've you know one thing I've I've studied a lot of art history uh, kind of obsessively and so I feel much more the weight of the context Hmm. and also the weight of time and um, the relationship of culture to the medium. Mm-hmm. You know, painting is an extremely archaic form, you know? I mean, you're smearing around dirt and schmutz with the weasel hairs on a stick. Uh-huh. That's pretty old-fashioned. Uh-huh. But the genre of music that I write for, which is American, is very young. It's mm. an extremely young art form. It's only, you know, I don't know. Old as a country, but literally mm-hmm. the forms that I'm involved in are 100 years old. So your relationship to the medium in time is very different. Yeah. Uh, it's also uh, a collaborative. The thing that's really interesting about it is it's uh, absolutely collaborative because I have a songwriting partner and then I have a band of eight or nine people. So it's a communal experience. We should describe that a little, like what, wh- how many band members, and you have brass and this sort of thing in it. So, um, I mean, is this part of this discussion? Sure. Uh, you know, it's eight piece band. It has uh, sousaphone, uh, saxophone. He also plays clarinet, flute, Armenian diduk, uh all the different saxophones. Then I have trumpet, and I have trombone. Then I have fiddle. Then I have guitar. And then there's me and I play guitar, harmonica, some flutes and things like that. And main vocals, right? And main vocals, right. We have like two part harmony, but I'm the primary vocalist. And then there's a drummer who's also doing vocals. So it's a, it's like a orchestra. Yeah, it's a huge band. Uh, but that's the other thing that I like is I like doing more than one creative thing because they really talk about each other because music is about texture and color and harmony and so is painting. And so I see that very much related and I also see the relationship of different creative problems. You, know, you have different creative problems with music as with painting, mm-hmm. but they also inter, you know, relate to each other as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one thing that's interesting... The fundamental difference in the two is time, because painting is a solitary, more or less, experience, and you're always there in time with yourself. Music, you experience with other people. It's it's not only the band, but the audience. Mm -hmm. And then once you experience, it's gone. You You can record it, but that experience... It is fugitive. It disappears into the ether. Mm-hmm. And you think about it three days later and you can't remember the intensity of feeling you had at that moment. So music exists in a very different place in time. Hmm. Uh, next Saturday.
0: Next Saturday, you know, i i guess it's probably the last chance I've got to go to a concert.
2: <laughs> I don't want you giving birth at my concert. It's totally going
0: to ruin the ambience, right? The, are you saying I'm not? Invited? Do you know that the,
2: the 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 glass harmonica, which was invented by uh, Benjamin Franklin, was supposed to make women instantly uh, give birth.
0: Um, really? Well, that, that, that doesn't sound like a bad thing to have. But we right won't now. have a
2: glass harmonica. Then.
0: <laughs> in, in, in that case, okay, so for everyone who wants to go to Wade's show next Saturday, uh, where, well, where, this is,
3: where is, is it? released
0: late. Oh, God, we're releasing like months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so. All right. oh, no, oh, never mind. <laughs> uh, you know,
2: I don't mind having a separation between my lives. That's, that's also a great privilege because I have separate lives. You know, like the music and the, and the painting life, they don't necessarily interact. Mm. And that's actually pretty cool. Yeah. You know, like I go to Europe and I'm much better known there than I am here. And then I can come back and, you know, like it's nice to have those different existences. You know, mm. it's, they're so far from each other. When I'm on tour, it's a different reality, you know. Uh, and that, I think, is a great privilege. You know, yeah. that. Uh, so do you Pieden. have any other questions? You have a. Good. This is going to be a nightmare to edit. You have a lot. Does Does the guy who No, did don't it, say it. Don't say it in front. <laughs> It'll be easy. <laughs> Lucas, <laughs> you're doing a great job. Does Lucas edit it without any suggestions from you guys? Yeah, no, yeah. It
1: goes through the Lucas filter without our our suggestions and comes out a beautiful thing. We just yep. ramble. Yeah.
2: Hi, Lucas. <laughs>
0: Lucas, we're, we're sorry. We're probably you Lucas is you, the most then. powerful
1: person on the whole. Podcast. Yeah, he, he
0: could cut any of us. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what we actually meant to say is like, thank you so much for yeah, well, for like. Wade, like this you is know, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> coming thank to this you. very very well, humid room In the art students leave. Nice,
2: nice to be here with you friends. So thank uh, you. Thank you, you for asking me. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Art Crime Podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Also, we're on Instagram at Art Podcast. You can leave comments on the thread or DM us there. We usually see them. Also, Facebook, we're at Art grime Podcast. You can uh, leave comments, future questions for our guests, and such. There, our website is www. Artgrindpodcast.com.
3: Definitely go there for the beautiful images that we post off the artist. And don't be shy to donate us money so we could buy some really good booze for the guests. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye.
3: Bye.